Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb. Here with me, as always, is Jonathan Carter. Hello, Jonathan. How are you doing this week? What's up, Brian? I'm good. Hearing episode two is, is strange. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we had to get past episode one at some <laughs> point, true. right? And it is, uh, it is now out there in the open. People have been listening. Man, am I overwhelmed by the feedback. You know, it's so scary to put out a new project. You never know what people are going to think. You never know if it's going to come out the way it is in your head, if people are going to connect in the way you hope they do. But thus far, the response I've been getting is overwhelming. How how about you? What has been, you know, what what have you been hearing from the people around you who have had a chance to listen to our first episode? I'm floored. Whether it's folks on Twitter, people from the sister podcast, or even just colleagues who I haven't talked to in a while who are like have my background and somehow decided that listening to someone else who they used to work with talk about this stuff was worth it and then giving me cool feedback like I don't know it, it's a, it's incredible yeah and you know thousands and thousands of people have listened to us already uh, that's an amazing place to start with a new endeavor like this just want to thank everyone who's reached out over on Twitter, you know, either at the Head Games Twitter account, which you can find at twitter.com backslash Head Games Podcast, games spelled G-A-M-S, obviously. Uh, or people have reached out to my own Twitter feed, Brian G-O on Twitter, Brian with a Y, again, of course. <laughs> but people have been so kind and so thankful and seeing them immediately, immediately connect with the ideas we're proposing. And it, it's got to be really inspiring for you, Jonathan, because these people are kind of saying, yeah, this guy presented facts and I'm willing to take his advice. And that's one of the hardest things for me anyway. I, I know I, I do another podcast where I give a lot of advice and sometimes people just don't want the advice. <laughs> They're just there because they want to either justify their own interpretation of things or they want to just argue with you. You know, that happens a lot too. But in this case, people really, really responded to what you were saying. That's got to feel good. Yeah, it does. I'm wondering if it gets to a point where I ever tell someone they're wrong, if it's going to have the same feedback. But. Well, that's always a fear. <laughs> I know how that goes. Um, yeah, so it's just, uh, it, it's just cool to like right away people are diving in and, and trying the tips. And like, I, I'm not going to put anything out that I haven't personally tried because um, I, I believe folks in my position should walk the walk or at least attempt the walk as as well as they can. So it is just cool to see people diving in right away. Right. And I think the item that's gotten the most traction, the biggest response from our first episode is the gratitude journaling, Mm -hmm. or even, you know, if it's not specifically journaling, just the act of reflection you talked about at the end of the day, you, you mentioned how you would sit with your wife and you'd look for positive things throughout the day to talk about people love this idea. I can't tell you how many people are responding to this and bringing this into their own life. Yeah. Like even friends of mine who knew this was coming, uh, other folks who are either on the, the, the game podcast discord or just folks have been replying to me on Twitter just saying like, they're going to do it. They're double checking, making sure they're using the right app or they're doing it right. Like if you're at the point where you're putting in that thought, you're you're already on the right track. Like you're you're trying to you're trying to trying this out, right? Kind of no right way to approach this as long as you're making the effort to find points of gratitude throughout your day. That's what's about. And to that effect, 
I did this. I, I spent the last period since we recorded looking for ways to integrate this into my own life. And I wasn't always good about doing the sit down journaling, but I did. You know, my wife listened to the podcast. She really liked it. Obviously, she has to. She's my wife. She has no choice. <laughs> but uh, we we sat down at the end of the day and and looked for points of gratitude. And I have noticed. Look, I'm not going to say it's completely changed my life. That would be very <laughs> dramatic at this stage. But there were a few points throughout the past week or so where something happened, and I felt like my response was a little different. For instance, I traveled across the country to a wedding. I was best man at my cousin's wedding out on the East Coast. Obviously, a, a super exciting event. I was very happy to be there, but I can be a bit of a curmudgeon at times. And there were difficult points to getting to this wedding and, and the tasks that had to be done. You know, I had to fly across country. It was very hot in New York. I had to give a best man speech, which I didn't have a ton of time to prepare for. So all of these points could have been instances of stress or, you know, really difficult situations. But instead, I found myself focusing a lot more on the positive things, how good it was to see all of my friends again, you know, how happy I was with the woman who was being introduced to my family, my cousin's wife, what a great person she was, um, how grateful I was for the opportunity to give the best man speech as opposed to dreading, oh no, what am I going to say? So it, it was really cool to see that kind of immediate change in how I was approaching things. And, you know, did you catch me on a good day? And that's just what I would have done anyway. It's hard to say, but I'm still pleased with the effort I've put in to do this gratitude work. And I, I do think it's paying dividends. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned effort. Uh, we talked a little last week uh, or last podcast, how, you know, all the stuff takes work. Yeah. I mean, you're noticing some stuff overnight and that doesn't mean that like in a week you're going to go back to other habits potentially, but it's definitely something I've noticed over the years has impact in moments like what you're talking about. Like this past weekend, I was up in New York clearing my mom's house so we could sell it and, and it's a mess. And there's, I swear she saved every toy my sister and I ever had. <laughs> um, and so we're, we're like, we had a bunch of friends who were helping us move, which is awesome. And we could be focused on the fact that it was raining. It was hot. I had to drive six hours to get to New York. There was traffic, but it was just cool. Like, going through old toys and talking with friends. And and like, I can't say that if it had happened, like, I don't know, eight years ago, if I would have had that same focus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally buy that. It, it's always very hard to put hard metrics to efforts like this. Are we seeing improvement because of the thing or did, you know, are we just willing to look for improvement because we're trying this new method, which, you know, probably has its own value as well. Mm -hmm. But regardless, I, I loved that little tidbit, that little piece of advice, I think you nailed the task I gave you, which is find a way to affect some immediate improvement in our mental state. So props to you on a very successful first episode for sure. So we're about to move into our, our topic for this week, but mm -hmm. there was one thing I really wanted to kind of dive into a little bit more and clear up before we get into our new topic. And it's about you. For lay people such as myself, and I'm sure that over the past couple of weeks, as this podcast has become an, a known entity and I've been talking with people, I've done a bad job of this. <laughs> uh, and so I apologize in advance. But I often struggle with the difference between a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist or a clinical psychiatrist, you know, all these distinctions I don't quite understand. And I have a feeling there's probably some of our listeners out there who feel the same way. So I thought maybe at the second episode, it would be a good time to check in with you 
and get the breakdown from you. Explain to us the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist and you know where exactly in this host of psychological professions do you fall? Gladly. Uh, and I would say there are people in my field who are also confused by it at times. <laughs> Interesting. I, I believe that, uh, you know, coming, coming as a lawyer, there was a lot of that people who didn't really understand what they were able to do and not able to do. So right. I, I buy this. All right. So easy one to check off, push, push our side. Uh, psychiatrists are medical doctors. They have an MD. Their focus is on psychology and they are able to prescribe medication. They don't have a PhD in psychology. They have a medical doctorate with a focus in psychology. They're medical doctors. They treat psychological issues, but they get to do so with both talk and with medicine, drugs, etc. I'm not that. <laughs> gotcha. A psychologist is a term that is reserves, governed, I don't know the best word for it, by the APA, the American Psychological Association. And to be a psychologist, you need to have a clinical doctorate in psychology. And so that means you have a substantial amount of hours practicing clinical psychology. So that's that's the probably stereotyped psychology everyone thinks of. You are right, reading, sitting on the couch yeah. telling stories. Yeah, gotcha. it could be a couch, but like th that is a person you go to for therapy. Um, there are many other credentialings that can provide therapy to whether it's a licensed LPC, like that's a master's level, but they again have like licensure in a state, some social workers, it's all clinically based. Um, but to be a psychologist, like IST at the end of it, you have to have a, a clinical doctorate in psychology. Also gotcha. not me. <laughs> gotcha. So, so where do you fall then? So my master's is in sport and performance psychology. Neat thing is that a, and I'm going to use neat, oh, you can interpret why I use neat. <laughs> um, a, a clinical psychologist can call themselves a sports psychologist with zero sport or performance training. I cannot use psychologist because I don't have that training. So like just because someone's called a sports psychologist, I, a lot now like hopefully have sport and performance backgrounds and they, they understand the intricacies there. Um, but sport isn't a protected word, psychologist is. So my degree, I have a ton of applied experience in really just focusing on how do we get people performing better at whatever their performances are. So I don't focus at all on clinical issues, be it depression, eating disorders, anything that would be diagnosed in the DSM, which is like the, the Bible of, of psychological diagnoses. Like that's not me. I am solely focused on how do you perform better how do we get your mind out of the way so that you're performing at your best more often? Gotcha. Okay. I, I do think this is an important point of distinction. I think it's the last time we'll have to go through it, mm -hmm. but we want to be above board, completely clear with the advice we're giving, where it's coming from, what level of credentials you, you hold. And, you know, they are, this isn't to downplay your credentials. I mean, you've, you've done a tremendous amount of work in the field. I just think it's very clear that we draw those lines so people know exactly who they're listening to right now. So I appreciate you walking me through that because I know it's something that I get twisted up all the time. So I, I think with that out of the way, we can move on to the focus of this week's show. And it's kind of funny that we found this topic for our second episode. I think to some extent, 
we were <laughs> setting ourselves up in case we had a bad result <laughs> with our first episode. We wanted to have this second episode in the holster because it was what we would have been going through ourselves and would have given us an opportunity to talk through the emotions we were having. But we want to talk about failure mm-hmm. this week. That is the focus of our show. Thankfully, I don't feel like a failure right now. I feel like we did a nice job with our first episode and people feel similarly. So that's good. I'm glad we're not talking about that particular instance of failure in this (laughs) second episode. But we are going to talk about failure generally. So Jonathan, why don't you kind of kick off our discussion of failure and talk a little bit about where we're going to go today? Sure. And we're likely going to have a conversation at some point about accepting failure and and that's massive and and we'll talk about different solutions so to speak but i just want to get out of the way that failure sucks like yeah i I don't want anyone thinking the the listening they're about to embark on is going to be like failure is okay it's fun like losing is is great because i don't think that's who you and me are so if if that's what you're looking for it it's it's not going to happen here no, that was very clearly not the direction this was going to go when, when we signed up for this. So we're here to compete. We're here to win. You know, are there tools I use to normalize failure? Sure, but not, I, I'm never okay with it. I have ways to deal with it, but I never feel good. So just generally, like, I want people to think about how common failure is, in particular, if we talk performance or competitive domains. Like, if you think about baseball, someone's considered a good hitter if they hit the ball like a third of the time. So so someone with like over a 300 batting average, it means that they're missing 70% when they go up to bat. And yet that's like a, a standard of good hitting. If you think of like startup businesses, yeah, we, we hear all the examples of great startups that were super successful, but I, I've been able to work with some venture capitalists, especially in esports, like they're all over the place now. And I've had some tell me that they won't even invest in a business that hasn't failed yet. Because they want to know that like people have experienced what failure is like, because not everything is easy to win. So we obviously hate failing and failing does suck, but it happens all the time. Sure, sure. And especially if you look at my competitive background, (laughs) you know, my main two outlets, Magic the Gathering, poker, you can be successful at those two things, quote unquote successful, and never actually win. That's that's what's kind of crazy about it. Like the best Magic the Gathering players in the world, they're estimated to at the pro tour level win like 60% of their games or something like that. Mm-hmm. So obviously they lose quite often. They, they win more than they lose, but they still lose a lot. I, I don't want to give an exact quote, but I, there was a Hall of Fame player, Magic the Gathering player I talked to a long time ago, who said something to the effect of they're the only person in the Hall of Fame who's never won anything. And what they were referring to was that they they qualified for the Pro Tour via a good result at another tournament, but not winning, did well at many, many Pro Tours, never won. And that combined career of consistently doing good, but never actually winning the thing was enough to put them in the Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame. And yet they failed almost every single time they went out. They didn't have any wins under their belt. So it, it's really interesting that for whatever reason, my pursuits tend to have a ton of failure tied into them. We see it in sport too. Like I'm a huge New York Rangers fan in hockey and Hank Lundquist is very likely going to retire without ever getting a Stanley Cup and it's criminal. Because like despite being one of the best goalkeepers yeah, in the league, yeah. Ever. One of the best ever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. doesn't have a cup. 
So yeah, but that kind of comes with being a New York Ranger, right? In, in most instances, yeah, unless he was 1994. But right, I, I controlled him a little bit. My father is a, a diehard Rangers fan, diehard. I mean, I, I think he cried when they won the cup in '94, and you know, kind of spent his whole life waiting for that moment. And things have been pretty lean since that moment, um, and seemingly will continue to be. But yeah, that's why I, I feel justified in throwing some barbs in there. What's interesting too is in people are tuning in if they want to hear like, okay, failure, great. We all know about it. But like, what does our brain do? What's really interesting is our brain interprets failing the same way and not necessarily to the same extent of what it's like to like lose a loved one or like lose something you really care about. Yeah. So we, this came up in our, our pre-show discussion and preparation. You, you mentioned this and I was struck by it. Because my first instinct was, well, it's, it's just failure. I mean, you know, one of the most traumatic things we go through is the loss of a loved one. But then I thought back to some of my own failures and started thinking about how I processed them and the emotions I went through. And I was like, wait, maybe there is actually a, a huge analog here because it, it, it's so crazy. The parallels I started drawing between my behavior you know, in that horrible situation of having lost a loved one and my behavior after a really, really stark failure. And they lined up. They, they really did. So I'm kind of a buyer in this theory now. You sold me very easily as soon as I took the time to, to stop and just think about my own behavior. Yeah, it, it's pretty neat. We can classify a lot of the ways we think into predictable buckets, so to speak. So th there's just different types of thoughts we have. And if we have that type of thought, most of the time, we can guess pretty strongly what type of emotion we're going to have. And so and when we have thoughts about like, we lost something, or like, we, we had something valuable, and we no longer have that, most of the time we get sad. And then when we get sad, we tend to like, pull away from people, or just like, go do our own thing. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, like, anytime... You lost a toy as a kid, or like maybe you did lose a loved one, or maybe you lost a competition. That's probably how you reacted. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I'm seeing the parallels now that you've presented it in this way. And uh, have you ever heard of um, like the stages of grief? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so they tend to be denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So like first we are like, nah, like that didn't happen. Then we get really mad about it. Then we like plead. Then we get really sad and then eventually we figure out a way to like accept that that failure happened or like that loss happened and, and move on. You, you mentioned before the show, before we started recording, that something came to mind that lined up with this. You want to give our audience that example? Sure. So I think that personally, there's not a whole heap of tremendous instances of failure that I see throughout my life. Now, a lot of that is, I'm sure, coping mechanisms. Obviously, we fail every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that I've found ways to redirect these micro failures into hopefully positive experiences, be it learning experiences or you know, uh, just some means of growth. So when I catalog my failures, there's very few instances where I am actually being like, oh man, that was a real failure. I really dropped the ball there and I, I still feel bad about it to this day because a lot of these things I just move on from. But this one, to some extent, I do still feel bad about and I feel like I really bungled my handling of the situation and didn't prepare properly. But it was in the period when I had left my job at a New York City law firm. 
And I wasn't sure if I was going to continue my legal practice or really what I was going to do. I, I just I just knew I wanted something different and I was exploring a lot of options. And one of the options I explored was a job in game design. Obviously, I, I love gaming. I've loved gaming my whole life. I've played a billion games and thought about games forever. And to me, I was like, I should be a great fit for this. I, I will be a fantastic game designer. I'm meant to do this. I have to get this job. And so I applied for the job and I had gotten you know, a bit into the interview process and it was clear that they were considering me, uh, at least in, in some regards. And so I was presented with a game design test and I had 24 hours to complete the test and then resubmit it. I worked for 24 hours straight on the test, was not particularly satisfied at all with what I submitted. And I went back afterwards and you know, continue to obsess over the test and think about it more and do more research. And then I really, really hated what I submitted. I just felt like I dropped the ball in every possible way. Uh, I should have prepared more ahead of time. I should have thought more carefully. A lot of answers were coming to me now that didn't come to me at first, that I felt like if I had just slowed down, thought a little bit more, I could have found them. And and ultimately, I didn't get the job. And I think rightfully so. I, I certainly wouldn't have hired me based on the test I submitted in retrospect. But that really stuck with me. It was like this this effort to go out in a lark and try something new. And most times in my life, I've been rewarded for those kind of efforts. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. It's just things have worked out very well for me. I'm very, very lucky, blessed, and privileged. I don't downplay any of that. Things have gone extremely well for me in life. And I know it's not by sheer force of will like people like to sell it. I get a lot of breaks. I'm very lucky, very privileged, uh, 100%. But, but here was an instance where things just went wrong. And I wasn't able to get this goal that I was really striving for. And even to this day, it sticks with me to some extent. I still think about the test from time to time and things I could have done differently. What did you do when you found out? Like, Did they call you, email you something, tell you like, hey, test was no good. You're not getting this job. Or did they not give you feedback? I got I got an email saying I it wasn't specifically saying that the test was no good, but it said they were considering another candidate. I'm assuming you're looking for my reaction to that news. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, so I my office at the time was upstairs in my house. I got the email. I went downstairs, sat on the couch for by myself for a little while. And this was at a time when my wife was working at home, so I could have, you know, gone to her right away and told her the news. But I sat there for a little bit. Uh, I cried. I definitely cried for a minute or two because I, I, I was upset. I felt bad. Then I gained some composure and I went and told my wife that I wasn't getting the job. Makes sense. Initial reaction being to just like withdraw from everything. Like obviously a strong amount of grief there. I'm yeah. curious, like how, how long did it take you to realize your fault in it or... Or like that, it was the right call on their part, like anything along those lines. I think I, like I said, I was never thrilled with the test. It never felt like a home run to me. Like, I, oh yeah, I'm getting this job. Absolutely. Like I've had interviews where I sit down and have the conversation with the interviewer and, and I'm like, okay, well, they're going to call me in the next day and I'm going to be offered this job. I never had that feeling. So I think there was part of me that recognized my role in the decision but there was a point of anger for mm. me, and that was that I wasn't being given any feedback. 
you know, I had kind of, I felt like I put a lot of effort into the test. I had been waiting, I think at that point for two weeks for them to review my test when it was only supposed to take a week. So I, d- I did have a moment of anger where I was like, well, you know, how, how dare they kind of take my time and, and not give me any feedback. Obviously in retrospect, that was kind of the terms of <laughs> the agreement and they, they can't spend their days teaching people how to be game designers. That doesn't make any sense. So I've moved past that anchor certainly, but in the moment I felt it for sure. Huh. So, so it was, it was two, it was a couple of weeks after that you got this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. A couple of weeks after I submitted the test. Huh. We're obviously going back, but I'm wondering how much can you remember of like between submitting the test and actually getting that? Did you, you said you knew when you were doing the test, when you submitted that, that it didn't feel good. Like you were kind of doubting your chances. Yes. Yep. What did you convince yourself at all during the two weeks? Like, you know what, maybe, maybe it was really good or like finding. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I went back and forth for sure. (laughs) Like I, I think my tale in retrospect is always going to be one of, I knew I wasn't going to get it because that kind of confirms the outcome and I feel a little <laughs> bit better in myself. But there was 100% points within that two weeks where I was riding this roller coaster like, you know what? Actually, this was a really good idea. And if they just look at it my way, then maybe they'll understand what I was going for here and be able to connect with me. Certainly points of that. I think the trend was I messed this up and I wasn't going to get it. But there were definitely moments of, oh, yeah, yeah, this was good. Yeah, yeah, they'll they'll get it. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not easy to just separate the brain into these really concrete, easy to unpack moments. But it's almost like you submitting the test was one thing and then actually finding out was another. And it sounds like you went through this this almost cycle or roller coaster throughout those two weeks of thinking like, all right there's no way they don't hire me. How come they haven't responded yet? You know what? Maybe it's not the time. And then like maybe being sad about it. And then maybe it's just a part of, it sounds like you have a a pretty healthy way of dealing with lack of success in general that, that like the accepting it in that moment happened pretty quickly. Like you took your time, you went down, you sat on the couch, uh, you cried for a little bit and then you went and talked to your wife. So like maybe at that point, like you'd already come to terms with the fact that your test wasn't that great. Yeah, I think there was some of that. I, th- I think it may have been that my stages of grief, I accelerated them before the actual event happened. Like I was already going through some of the denial, acceptance, you know, all those stages um, before I had even gotten to the outcome. Yeah. And it doesn't just happen cleanly each time, like these stages of grief. I just think it's really fascinating to think that our brain does that even when it's it's just us failing to succeed. Yes. I'm, cu- I'm curious... Like, what have you done with that failure, if anything? Like, has has your lack of success there and and noticing what led into it informed any future attempts at stuff? Yeah, well, you know, it, it hasn't it hasn't influenced attempts. I, I haven't applied for any other game design roles since mm-hmm. that point, but I did spend a bunch of time after that studying game design, and I had casually been studying game design. Pr- prior to, you know, uh, applying, but then I went a little bit harder and I got a bunch of books on the theory of game design and started thinking about things in that lens more often. Cause obviously there's different ways to engage with games. We can just pick up the game and play it and not go down that road. But I found myself after this failure, a lot of times looking at games through a game design perspective and recognizing, you know, some of the techniques and tactics they were using in design in order to influence player experience. And obviously the literature I engaged with also did a lot to shape my mind in that direction. So 
I haven't actively applied anything gained from that failure, but I did go and seek out some information after it happened for sure. And let's say tomorrow you wake up and you're like, you know, I do want to be a game designer. (laughs) We'll just pretend like, how do you see yourself approaching? Like if you were given a very similar test, how, how would you go into that this time? Same, different? I, I think I'm going into it differently just by virtue of what I've learned since then. Okay. And if anything, the biggest takeaway I could take from that failure was that sometimes achieving goals needs to be a longer process. Like basically, I was just, I woke up one day, I was like, you know what? I want to do some game design. <laughs> Went looking for game design jobs, applied, got the interview very quickly. So within like, two days of me deciding I should be a game designer. (laughs) I was participating in game design interviews. So it moved very, very quickly. And in retrospect, I think I would have benefited from doing all of this very focused research, this very careful thinking, some form of practice test, maybe some some just designing ahead of time under similar contexts. I mean, if, if I were to attempt this again, my entire approach would be completely different. I would do warm-up exercises and, you know, some refreshment reading and, and all kinds of things I could think of to really prepare myself for success in this instance. So is it fair to say walking away from that and even just like reflecting on it now, it's like you failed there, like you weren't successful at that task, but you didn't walk away from it thinking like, man, I suck or like, I'm not able to do anything or. No, cer- certainly not long-term. There was, there was a moment of that. Again, I, I think, sure. I think there's movement along this spectrum and there was a, a moment and, and maybe even a couple days of just like, uh, I can't believe I blew this. This might've been my one chance. A hundred percent that happened. Mm-hmm. But long-term, while I still think about it, while I still carry some of it with me and, and I do still wonder, well, what if I had done better on the test? You know, where am I at right now? But it, it, it doesn't have the same kind of haunting cataclysmic failure vibe. It's more just like, this is something that happened. What can I take from it? Right. So it, it was that you were unsuccessful, but it's not that you are a failure. So like, Correct. The, so moving forward, that failure is now a, a point of data, but it's not like you as your character wasn't like on display and fully failed in that moment. Right. Right. I, I think that's a very fair summation of how I process it now. And like now that you have that data, like even just the way you walk through what it would look like to approach it a, a second time, you have like either a better solution or maybe you have a faster solution because you have that data that you built off of. Right, right. Yeah. And I think if we can reframe when we do fail as points of data and not character assassinate, like that's a very, really useful because we, we mentioned earlier to start this cast, like failing happens all the time. And it already sucks, but doesn't it suck more if like you just keep failing and then you don't do anything with it? Hmm. And you just used it as a means to kind of browbeat yourself and right. really internalize it and take it. I, I think you you said basically this, but I, I want to seize on it. I think I see a lot of my friends and people I care about take failures as indictments on their personhood. They mm-hmm. take it to define themselves. They say there's something wrong with me for having failed. Like I said, while I may have moments of that, I know that long-term that is not useful behavior and something that you can only benefit from distancing yourself from those kind of emotions. It, it makes all the difference in the world. 
Right. So, so failing at a task or failing at a performance is way, 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 way different than failing as a person. Correct. Brian didn't get that job, but Brian isn't suddenly a horrible person, terrible husband, whatever negative thing you could say about yourself. It's just like, no, you, you were unsuccessful. Like that doesn't mean that Brian is a failure of a person. Yeah. And I think that's a struggle for myself, for a lot of other people is is getting it away from your personhood and, and making it an instance, not something that reflects on you. I agree. So how do we fix that? Do you, do you have ways? I mean, that's what you're here for. You have to correct <laughs> us. So how are we supposed to distance ourselves to make these failures feel more like a blip and less like an indictment? I think I said this in the first cast. I probably already said it today and I'll likely say it every single time. But like, just to be really clear, this is not magic wand, flick the switch. Suddenly, if you have a, a bad relationship with failure that listening to my voice is going to fix it. Yeah, you know, you know I don't approve of that. I really <laughs> wish you'd just bring the magic wand. I wish I had one too, man. But so part of the the process is just even what we just walked through with with your failure, like coming to terms with like this, this self-inventory of in the moment, like how am I doing? Like what's my body telling me? What kind of emotions am I having? Or if you're processing a failure after it happened, like, okay, what did I do? How do I feel about it? Like, am I pissed off? Am I sad? And like, what kind of thoughts am I having? Like building this self-awareness and throughout all of this, we we talked to last week, the gratitude, like self-awareness is massive. It's really hard to make any changes if you don't know where you're starting from. And I think part of what helps people get this awareness is creating feedback loops. And by that, I mean, just like either internal process or external, like a way to get feedback on what it is you're doing, in this case, failure, and just starting to get an awareness for what that looks like. Obviously, I'm sure it's different for every person. Can you think of useful feedback loops that maybe some of our listeners can apply going Mm -hmm. forward where they're faced with failure? Yeah, I think in, in any situation, if we're talking performance, it's really useful to think about what are you thinking? How's your energy? What are your emotions like? And you could even just take this as an inventory after the fact, like, and and we're talking about failure today, but man, this also applies in success too. Like you can absolutely Mm. be successful through luck and have no say in the matter. Just keep getting lucky. It's a way better to figure out why you're succeeding. And, And that comes out of the same process. So, so just internally thinking about like, what am I thinking? How am I feeling? What's my energy like? And if something goes into that energy, maybe thinking about like, what were the steps leading up to whatever the event was? Because if you start to figure out what those patterns are, like that helps you get a good amount of data to start from. That's really interesting because I hadn't mentioned this, but after our cast last week, I did a little bit more research on anxiety responses. Mm. And, you know, we talked about flight or fight or flight syndrome. I, I will always mess that up every single time. We, we talked a little bit about responses in the moment and how to address them and just the general anxiety that comes with performance. And one of the things I found as a useful kind of exercise to help control anxiety is grounding exercises. Mm. And I've used those with my own anxiety issues. And And what you're talking about here sounds, again, a lot like a grounding exercise. I mean, maybe I'll let you talk a little bit about grounding exercises and how you see them relating to this whole picture of getting control of your emotions and understanding what you're experiencing. 
Yeah, for sure. So I'm a huge advocate for mindfulness. And I'm sure at some point, we'll we'll talk all about it. But really, just the idea that if you have a good sense of what you're thinking, where your body is in space, and you're able to, to like pull yourself back to the to the present moment, like that's, that's super effective. I'm curious, when you say grounding, like, what is the process that you walk through? So the way I was first exposed to grounding exercises as a way to control basically anxiety attacks, very intense periods of anxiety. And often it just involves categorizing things by sense. So thinking of the way things around you smell at the moment, uh, looking around the room and identifying objects and sometimes saying the objects out loud, like, oh, there's a lamp, there's a desk, you know, simple exercises just to say, here's what's going on around me mostly in tune with our senses that that's the way i've always approached grounding exercises yeah so you some people like put a number to it but yeah absolutely around your senses you can just be as simple as what are three things i see three things i smell three things i hear feel like whatever it is Um, and, and what that does for us is if we're focused on bodily sensations it's really really hard to be focused on future or past thoughts Like we are absolutely in the moment because it is what we are experiencing right now. So I don't treat clinical anxiety stuff, but we talked anxiety around performance. And if I'm getting caught up, like if I'm anxious about a performance, it's usually because I'm focusing on what could happen, what might not go right. But if I start focusing on where am I in space? What am I smelling? It brings me back to the present moment and we perform in the present moment. So that's super useful. And does it, I mean, am I making a good analog in terms of its relationship to failure as well? If we're in the midst of experiencing failure, because a lot of times when we're competing, in retrospect, we'll often view competition as a whole. Mm-hmm. I, I won the game. I won the tournament. I won the match, whatever. But really, in the course of that competition, that tournament, that game, there's a hundred, a thousand, a million micro successes and failures. And each one of those can have the potential to overwhelm. If you fall behind early in a football game, you know, there's teams that are good come from behind teams. There's teams that are bad come from behind teams. So Mm -hmm. they face some failures early on. Are they going to respond to them? So do you think that in the midst of competition, having experienced kind of these micro failures, something like a grounding exercise could be useful to kind of get back into optimal performance? Definitely. Yeah, like a, a big performance is, is like a, a series of a lot of smaller ones. So like I play hockey and if we give up a goal or something, or like, let's say I get a, a sweet pass to me and I should score and, and I just miss it. Like if I get caught up in the fact that I just missed the net and gave up a free opportunity to score and I'm just focused on that, I'm probably going to get beat, like getting back on defense and then it can just get even worse. Right. So being able to stop and ground in the moment and th- we're talking internally, but you can do this for someone else too. And and if you have people who are able to provide you feedback, like that is a massive, massive, massive benefit for this kind of awareness. So like, I think you see it all the time in sports and I'm sure you, you've had these experiences where you notice someone else on your team is not where they need to be. And like, you just say something reassuring or you like, get them to focus on what the next couple of steps they need to do is, and that gets them back into it. I remember along those lines, my high school football team, 
It's funny how traditions kind of move through teams and how they'll exist year to year. But at, at some point in my tenure playing high school football, when we were losing at halftime, we started for our halftime kind of pep talks or coaching sessions. We started holding hands. And I think we didn't realize what we were doing, especially as high schoolers. We definitely didn't realize it. <laughs> But I think we were grounding ourselves. I think we were finding physical connections and, and just something else to get our heads back into the right space and so we could find our performance again. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's at least part of what that was doing, for sure. And like it can be other people making you grounded. I think also just post-failure, as much as we should be able to figure out, like what are the things that I can control to like change that a little bit? Like you mentioned earlier, you're test preparation wasn't really preparation. And you now know that you would need significant amounts of more time to, to adequately a, pr- approach an exam like that. If, if we can have a support system that is like strong, healthy, and we have people around us that can provide us feedback, like that is massive for our ability to de- not deal with only deal with failure, but deal with success. And, and we know like research very much supports that resilient people have strong social support systems and that getting feedback from someone else is a benefit. Like I think oftentimes we fear how other people are going to give feedback and, and like, we're not innocent of this. I don't know how you were feeling about like putting our first episode out there, but like I I felt pretty good about what we talked about, but man, was it absolutely in my head? Like, Oh, this could have (laughs) sucked and we're going to get all sorts of bad feedback. Yeah. It's scary. But like you try to tell yourself, like I'm going to use that feedback if I get it. And, and it's not something that can, like it's not worth fearing. Right. I mean, feedback's only useful if you do something beneficial with it, right? If you just take feedback right. and internalize it and use it to beat yourself up, well, what are you seeking feedback for? That's not that's not going to do anything for you. Uh, to the same extent, I think people often seek feedback as a means of self-justification too, which is something that I think is equally damning. Uh, if you mm-hmm. just use feedback to support what you want to hear and block out the things you don't want to hear, that's not really a good application of it either. And I think another pre-performance thing people can start doing is in the practice leading up to whatever it is you do, and, and this might be a recurring thing, like if, you have, if you're in a repetitive competition and you do it throughout the year, like you, you probably practice a lot. I think people can incorporate failure into their practice more and they'll see benefit from it. If the first time you fail is whatever pinnacle event it is you're looking for, not really setting yourself up for success with how you're going to react to it because you don't know, like you have not thought about or, or tried out what it's going to be like to experience that failure. That's really interesting. I mean, how would you suggest implementing failure into your preparation routines? Cause that's, it seems difficult in, in some instances, like say you're a, you're a golfer, right. And you're preparing for a, a golf outing, a golf tournament. How do you then integrate failure into your preparation when there there has to be stakes for there to be failure, right? So it's like just practicing and going out and hitting your range balls with nothing at stake is is probably not worth a whole lot. Where do we find this other aspect in our training? Where Where do we find this approach to failure? Yeah, I think good coaches do this. They structure practice environments in a way that the task is super difficult. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the exact thing as same thing as competition, but it could go back to, we were just talking social support. So like, I imagine 
competitive golfers, no other competitive golfers. And I would even wager a lot of them wager on playing against each other when it's not. (laughs) So like it's about adding consequences to it and it's not always going to be easy, but you can either make things a smaller competition. You can challenge yourself, like whether it's a certain goal you're trying to hit or golden state warriors really good at shooting three pointers. Steph Curry. Yes. So like, there was a point in practice where he wouldn't leave practice until he hit 100 three-pointers in a row. That's incredible. You might see him on an on an average night and and think like, oh, well, he probably just like throws 300 and or 100 of them and all of them go in and then he like calls it a day. But that's not the case. Like, so I think just building in even consequences of your own time or setting a goal and and telling other people about it and, and them knowing and keeping you accountable and like if you stumble one day. Even something as simple as you last cast talked about incorporating gratitude on a daily basis. And it's sure you said you didn't journal it, but like it's something you've started doing. And I I bet it would have not felt as good to like start recording this episode and be like, well, no, I didn't do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's funny that the always online nature of our lives these days Mm are really good at installing consequences for failure, yeah. right? I mean, we, we hold ourselves accountable on so many forms of social media. For us we're, on this podcast, we're holding ourselves accountable. It's just interesting how our lives have evolved to put those pressures there. And I think that can be both a blessing and a curse. I mean, certainly there's a lot more pl- pressure on the average life at this point. There's mm-hmm. a lot more influence and factors, but also it's undeniable that people keep achieving more and more and athletes get better and better and performers of every kind keep finding ways to push the envelope and find new improvements. And I'm sure this has a lot to do with it. Yeah. I think it's fascinating too. You can take it even outside of, of humans. You know what biospheres are? I always think of the movie biome with Pauly Shore, but it's like, that's what came to mind immediately. (laughs) Yes. I'm sure there's something better uh, that you want to talk about than biodome. Yeah. So people who are smarter than us at uh, all things, nature ecosystems etc they like set up biospheres so like enclosed just environments and they conduct research just to figure out how do things grow like what are the influence of of heat other stuff that i don't understand and i'm not going to pretend to understand but it has benefit to just like how we conduct business in terms of that stuff um but a while back they I believe it was at the University of Arizona. They set up some biospheres and they just like studied to see what would happen. And initially they didn't add wind, which I don't think I would have thought to add wind. So Mm. no fault on them. Um, But they started noticing that the trees were growing faster than they did in the wild. And then they, so they would grow faster. They would attempt to grow taller, but they would collapse before they fully matured. Hmm. Any guesses as to why? Yeah, well, I mean, the first guess that comes to mind is that in general, the process of standing up to wind strengthens the tree. And by being stressed and flexed in multiple directions, it probably helps the process of, you know, forming a good solid base for the tree to stand on. Yep. I think they call it like stress spark or something like that. But basically, if the tree never experiences wind, it doesn't need to adjust to it. And then it gets too heavy for itself and it, it like falls. So right. like, even nature needs failure to like do its thing. Right. And you know, it's, it's uh, I, I was thinking about, it's so funny that this comes up because I was just on a whale watch this past weekend and I was out in Puget Sound up here in Washington and 
we are well watch found a pot of orcas and we followed the pot of orcas and and watched them but one of the things that came up from our guide as as we watched the orcas was the the dorsal fin of the orcas if you've ever seen orcas in captivity in SeaWorld or something a lot of times their dorsal fin flops it doesn't stand mm, upright yeah. anymore because they swim in circles all day they don't have to fight ocean currents they aren't diving basically their lives are horrible and sea world's terrible but that's besides the point well i'm sure we'll get to all this stuff at some point in this podcast zoos are terrible sea world's terrible but beyond that it's the same type of principle where by having to work hard and by being stressed and by having to fight for survival and and you know have to dive and all these different aspects of typical orca life they form this big strong dorsal fin and it just doesn't happen when they're in captivity that's super interesting yeah i always wonder like it was always in my head like why is it circular but huh. mm-hmm. that is that is why <laughs> Uh, I I don't know how we got here to, yeah. to, to, to dorsal fins and trees. Uh, so maybe, you know, we're getting a little long in the tooth here. Is there anything else you kind of want to say as a wrap up point about failure? Any, any parting thoughts here? Sure. One last, let's, let's call it a quick tip. It's this concept called self-compassion. And I think mostly we suck at it, but one way to start figuring out how you deal with your own failure is Think about how you would talk to a friend who walks up to you after a loss and like most likely you would like console them in some sense. You'd maybe get them to focus on what it was that they could control. Like in a lot of games, variance happens or other people are more skilled. Like so if it's that case, get them to write it off, but like keep them accountable too. get them to think about, you know, what is it that they could have done different? So we do this for our friends, but we don't often do it for ourselves. And so one thing that is very, very constructive to do is like treat yourself with compassion too. And so it goes back to what we were talking earlier about failing at a task isn't failing as a person. And if you can think about like be your own best friend in that moment, like give yourself harsh feedback on like what it is you did, but don't character assassinate. Don't say you suck. Be mindful that like losing sucks and that it is going to be a struggle in that moment. But think about what you could do afterwards to maybe try not to fail next time. I think that's an excellent wrap up tip. You're spot on that we are at at least a lot of times I'm kinder to the people around me than I am to myself, Mm -hmm. but I am going to a tournament this weekend, a Magic the Gathering tournament out in LA. Uh, I hope I see a lot of you there, but also I am looking forward to turning these tactics inwards, doing a little bit more to uh, give myself compassion and analyze my failure better in the moment not internalize it not take it as a you know a a crux against myself and instead try and really get some positives from my failures this weekend of which i'm sure there will be many many (laughs) Uh, but hopefully in the end i will i will be victorious and we will be back here next week to play some more head games (laughs) 